This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Welcome, everyone, to the No Stroke Podcast. We are on our 30th episode here. Um, if you want to go into the uh, the nitty gritty, it's season four, episode five. But I think we're going to make the call here, Mike, that we're going to go straight from here. This point forward, just going to just count them out, right? This 30 is a big one. So was 30, 30 a big one? 31, my uh, college number, you know, okay. so that's going to be another special one. All right. So, so we're going to get, we're going to get some of your teammates on for that one. Maybe. I mean, we're going to have some Irish uh, folks on the, on the line. So that that's getting close. Indeed we are. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. We'll, 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 we'll work with that. So perfect. Um, So um, it's been still a hot stretch, right? Our last episode, we talked about, you know, precautions and heat stroke, heat, heat exhaustion, um, uh, and on the Northeast here, at least we're, we're still in the thick of it, right? You, you hanging in there. Okay. Yeah. You see, I, I had to change rooms. I don't have air conditioning. I don't have air conditioning in uh, the right. office. So I had to move into the bedroom for, for the intro to this. Uh, uh, if, I, if, I, if I see you starting to melt down, we'll, we'll, we'll pause. Okay. No, it's nice and air conditioned. I have, oh, it is. yeah, we okay. have air conditioner in the, in the uh, bedroom here. So it's, All right. that's why I made the move. Yeah, the West, you know, once it gets to the afternoon, that's when the sun starts hitting the windows and it's just, yeah, it you turns can't. into a sauna. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so let's, um, let's dive into it. We have a, we have a great episode. Um, um, but it, you know, in addition to in the, in, you know, the, the heat still being in the news, um, let's, let's talk about, um, maybe a few things that, you know, came up on, on, on alerts for in the news as far as stroke. Okay. Yeah. You want to lead us off yeah yeah there's one that it's kind of um you know sometimes when you hear headlines you're like oh what, what do they mean by that but there was a one that would came a sleep stroke study um that talked about the study headline was frequent napping can lead to high blood pressure and stroke and um and i'll, I'll dive into the details there in a second but are you i mean are you a power napper because this might if you saw this this might have threw you off a little bit in terms of you know what you've what your impressions were on that I am a power napper. You know that, um, okay. uh, you know, I I'm curious to learn more. Um, mm. I always heard napping was good. Um, you know, I, a lot of professional athletes, they, they live by, by the nap. Yeah. Um, so, so let's, let's hear the science. Yeah. What, what so they don't, so they probably put a put, should have put this in the sub headline, but it's not as, um, it's not as, uh, exciting, because it's always they're always looking, I think, for something too to make the headline. But it said they said basically the nap itself is not the harmful part. But the when they dive into the data, it's the the potential that if someone needs to nap all the time and nap frequently, that they might not be getting restful sleep at night when all of the when all of the beneficial things, you know, as science is starting to talk about and you know and, and we're going to be talking wearables related later but there's a lot of there's a lot of um you know a lot of products that you know the aura ring the you know the apple watch now the fitbits different models of different products are really trying to dive into the science of sleep but um what what they what they 
mention was that, um, you know, that frequent, that need for frequent naps during the day is probably a sign that, you know, that your sleep quality, that you might be getting poor sleep. And, and with that, can come an increased risk of hypertension and stroke. And the numbers, again, this is reported by the American Heart and Stroke Association. And they said, when compared to people who reported taking a nap, people often took naps, had a 12% higher chance of developing high blood pressure and 24% higher chance of stroke. That That's kind of significant. I don't know what the N is on that, Mike. I don't know how many people in the study, I didn't find that information, but... Mm. Um, I think that um, it, you know, it it does uh, it 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 does start to kind of make you think about um, the importance of restful sleep, you know, and and kind of getting that seven to eight hours consistent. Um, and you know, there's plenty of tips for that as well about you know how to shut things down and quiet your brain. So yeah, that, that uh, makes sense. So any anything on your end or anything any other comments there on on that particular study? Um, I used to get, you know, seven to eight hours and then I moved in with Megan who had a cat and they're nocturnal and they walk on you in the middle of the night. So anybody with cats, you might be, you know, the notorious nappers in, in that part. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I do my best. It, it does make sense. You know, obviously all the research does show, you know, proper rest, but I'm set you up for that next day. And, you know, when you think of hypertension, you know, there, there's a lot of those, a lot of leading factors that result back to inadequate sleep patterns. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'd be interested to, you know, kind of dive in a little further and see yeah. that, um, you know, there's always something new that's coming out in the Absolutely. space, right. You know, yep. you, you eat white grapes first, you know, uh, you know, whatever grape, you know, it's, you have a higher risk. Like it's, it's always something. Yeah. And nutri <laughs> nutrition in particular, nutrition science yeah. is uh, those headlines make me laugh with that being my background. Yeah. I'm always like, Oh, please don't make that the second thing you report on, on the nightly news, because it's I just know. ridiculous, but <laughs> slow. So yeah. Um, yeah. For me, I, um, so in, the the guests that we're bringing on today, um, we're going to be speaking to some work that was done in you know, the AI machine learning space and kind of tied in with wearables to support really tracking um, tracking rehab patterns, right? And being able to bring that into the rehab setting. Um, but to kind of keep in the theme of AI and machine learning. Um, a company that I know you and I, David, we've we've talked about um, and that's been on in this space really in like when you think about even going back, you know, a decade ago, probably at this point um, of companies that first made a real entry into the healthcare AI space um, is a company called Viz AI, right? So what Viz AI do, um, they collate, they, they've built a machine learning algorithm that interprets uh ct scans um and for so for when a patient goes in and you know that's the first kind of usual sign for you know if if someone is suspected to have a stroke is to get that ct scan see if there's a block a, a hemorrhage whatever type of stroke that there might be happening um what vis ai has have done is created a a platform which again with with their machine learning technology goes in and now accurately predicts at a faster rate than a doctor being able to look at that 
um, who might be having an ischemic, and it's primarily for ischemic strokes, actually. So one part of this is that they just released a study that now they're able, and actually got FDA clearance that they're able to accurately, accurately predict hemorrhagic strokes, so a bleed in the brain. Um, but what's interesting is they recently formed a partnership with a company called Hyperfine. Um, so Hyperfine is this kind of mobile um, CT scan that is able to go right to the bedside. So they, VizAI and Hyperfine have kind of combined in. So it'll be VizAI's deep learning and machine learning technology within Hyperfine's um, unit that it'll speed up the access for patients to get these scans, right? So instead of having to take a, take a patient from the ER up to the, the MRI um, scan, wherever that might be in a hospital, um, they'll have this mobile, like, so if it's suspected uh, a stroke patient's coming into through, um, through an ambulance, you know, my understanding of how this would work would be that the, you know, the doctors would have the scan ready to go as soon as that patient um, enters the ER and able to quickly make that diagnosis. So interesting partnership. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to kind of, you know, have these guys on um, in the future to, to discuss, you know, their, their technology and, and really the evolution because they've been around, like I said, they were really, they were one of the first companies to really make an impact in the, the AI space in healthcare. So interesting to kind of see their, their growth. Um, you know, they're in a lot of the leading uh, stroke centers throughout the U S and I'm sure certainly abroad as well. So um, yeah, that, I, I kind of pulled that away. I thought it themed nicely to, you know, the conversation yeah, yeah. today that we'll be having with Heidi. Um, and one other shout out, I saw Yukon Health Center. So a couple of our previous guests was on um, as a as a uh, stroke care nurse from Yukon Health in Connecticut. They just won um, high honors for kind of stroke care um, through the U.S. News and World Report. So nice oh, little wow. shout out to them. I know you did a you did a, um, yeah. a talk with them recently. So yep. yeah, nice to see them get that kudos. Oh, that that's great. And uh, good pickup on uh, the ZI too. I remember them early on and uh, I missed that one. So let's get both those in the news in our show notes for anyone who wants to dive in and learn more too. But I, I'd love to, you know, potentially um, get, get that get that as a, as maybe a full, a full interview. So, yeah, um, I mean, we tend to kind of, you know, focus obviously in the rehab space um, and a lot of our discussions and, and project is kind of focused on that acute to long-term chronic uh, stage. But I think with the work that they're doing is so important, you know, it obviously at that stage impacts what that rehab process is everything else yeah so yeah it's it is fascinating work that they're doing so yeah we would love to to have an episode dedicated to that super so that leads us to our today's guest uh uh do you want to uh give a little background to heidi before we bring her in yeah absolutely so um we we discussed uh heidi's work in a recent it's probably what two episodes three episodes ago yeah um so it's the Primsky tool, which is trying to define a, an algorithm and technology that can interpret rehabilitation patterns in a clinical setting using wearable sensors. Um, so 
Yeah, it's gonna. It's it's a really interesting episode. Um, Heidi will kind of bring us through the origins of of what kind of sparked this research, um, their why, and some of the results and and what's coming um, out of you know her personal research and and that of the the facility she works with. So, yeah, um, just a bit of a bio. So. Heidi Shambrara uh, is our guest today. She is an associate professor of neurology and rehabilitation medicine uh, at the and director of the neuroepidemiology director and research at the Mobilis Lab. So the Mobilis Lab is out of NYU Langone, which is obviously in, in New York City. Um, Dr. Shambara received her undergrad in neuroscience from Brown University um, and then got her, her MD out of Emory University. She completed her training in neuro, neurology at Harvard Partners in the neuro, neuro Rehabilitation Center at Burke Rehabilitation uh, Hospital. She also completed a postdoctoral fellowship in motor learning and non-invasive brain stimulation at the Burke Rehabilitation Hospital. And when she was, she actually sounds like she, so she was at the facility at Columbia University until about 2016. And then she moved to um, NYU Langone. And yeah, I think we're gonna learn a couple fun facts about her as well. Um, possibly about um, taxon, taxonomy and clouds, which is pretty interesting. And yeah, as a fellow New York resident, she likes to spin around in New York City bikes. So it was just a really fun conversation with her. Um, I think you and I kind of going into it. One of our things was, all right, what's this mean, you know, for for people and obviously for stroke patients, but folks like yourself in a clinical setting. Um, and I think we covered a lot of that. Yeah. What were yeah. your thoughts? No, let's, uh, you know, there, uh, I loved her. Uh, AI and training algorithm and in the comparison to sniffing dogs. So I think uh, it was a really great way to make the explanation for folks who you hear AI all the time and you, you don't, you, you kind of think that it's going to be um, something to be um, afraid of. So I really like the way she explained it and how it can fit in the, the human element is absolutely has to be there. And it's just only to make clinicians and, and, and interpretation of data um, more precise. So let's bring her in. I mean, I, I can't I, I can't wait to share this episode with folks. So let's do it. Here we go. Hi, Heidi. Welcome to the No Stroke Podcast. Pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. You, um, you've been a busy woman lately. I've seen, we've seen you in the news a little bit for those who kind of follow the, the neurologist uh, space. Um, and, you know, we're, it's really exciting to have you on here. Um, a lot of our work is all, you know, focused around this rehab space. You know, we've talked about wearables. We've talked about, you know, kind of really driving this next phase of, of innovation into the stroke care pathway. Um, yeah. So really excited to dive into the work you're doing. Um, so, but before that, like, can it, let's give a, a bit of background to our listeners, uh, you know, where you are, where you're located today, you know, where, where you've come from and kind of how you've gotten to your position with NYU uh, Langone. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you again for um, this amazing podcast. It's a wonderful um, asset for our patients, our stroke patients who, and individuals with stroke who are sort of 
working through the consequences. So thank you for bringing this, this the new technologies to this uh, group of folks. Um, so I'm at NYU Langone. This is in New York City proper in Midtown Manhattan. And um, yeah, we, I've been here for you know now six years, um, previously at Columbia, um, just up the road. And before that, I've um, you know have trained all over the, the the East Coast, I would say. So I've um, you know I'm a trained neurologist. Uh, I did my residency at um, Mass General and Brigham and Women's in, in Boston, and then did a postdoc at the NIH, um, and did some additional fellowship training at Columbia and um, Burke Rehab Hospital at, in White Plains. Um, and then uh, yeah, have developed a, a clinical research lab here. So that's. Um, that's been my academic path. I'm a North Carolinian by birth. Barbecue can only be done right down there, um, but that's that's sort of um, my background. Very nice. What part of North Carolina? Uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Oh, uh, Go Tar Heels, you know? Yeah, uh, I <laughs> right. uh, so before we, you know, get into some of the serious stuff we, we like to ask, you know, is there, do you have anything, do you have a fun fact for us that we could? Yeah, I had so many fun facts, um, but I, yeah, I know, I think one of the things I really love to do and actually inspired the origins of this work is to learn the taxa, the taxa of clouds, um, the taxonomy of clouds. So, um, you know, there's just this rich um, sort of history of trying to identify cloud based on their phenotype, but also their elevations. And of course, they're used for predictive um, qualities, but um, it's just they're, you know, they're lovely to watch. It's really fun to learn the, the Latin, you know, scientific names for them and the variants and so forth. And, um, you know, to recognize that there are patterns in, you know, chaos and sort of wildness out there and, you know, that, but there's sort of regularity in nature and, you know, regularity and how we move and so that's that was sort of a, a, a launch point for me so completely recommend if you haven't already um to get the cloud spotters guide and it's a hilarious book it's very entertaining but you will learn a lot too and um yeah and you can see where i started thinking about taxonomies of entities um from that so we could find you the weekends in Central Park, looking up at the clouds. And yeah, most of the times I have a window right there and I have a little sliver of sky that I try to look and see what's what's floating by um, when I'm trying to write grants or papers and you know think big thoughts. Um, I can always lock back to my clouds. That is interesting. I'm, I'm writing that down because I have a, a cool app for, for stars and I think it's the greatest thing to I'd be able yeah. to identify the constellations. Yeah. yeah. So all that yeah. tech stuff. So on the tech side, Heidi, um, interesting when I was reading some information about you, I, I get very excited when I see anyone's in the wearable and talking yeah. tech for, for stroke rehab. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your interest there? Maybe what potentially sparked it as a stroke yeah. specialist, and and yeah. um, how do how do you you, you um, the the term that I'm going to the specific tool you're working on PrimSec is that yeah. is that something you can speak to for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it, it's sort of it's it's funny how I arrived here because it's not I didn't necessarily set out to do methods development <laughs> research. Um, you know, my the, the big story I think that's happening in, in neuro recovery and, re, and neuro rehabilitation of stroke, um, and particularly in the motor systems and in the arms, which is sort of the area I study, um, is that 
there are some critical ingredients that, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people recover after a stroke and there's some innate sort of plasticity that gets kicked into action because of the stroke event itself. But there's also, um, th there are things we can do with therapy to, to really um, power up that type of intervention. So really engage the, the physical training that's, that's delivered by occupational therapy or physical therapy. Um, and so one of, the, one of the key sort of ingredients that's emerged certainly from the, the basic literature and the, and the, uh, the, the, the preclinical research in, in rodent models and monkey models of stroke is that you know, repetition really matters, particularly early on after stroke. And so the number of movements that an animal is making really will drive whether an animal recovers in sort of a meaningful way versus um, they don't recover. So there's a little bit of a bump just by that inherent we call endogenous plasticity that occurs after stroke, but um, it's not really enough to kind of help people or help animals in this case recover fully. So the, the repetition is a key, a key component, that dose or that intensity of training is a real key component. And we, and we know this from like just basic motor learning principles, right? Like you need to practice a ton in order to get skilled at something, you know, you don't just do it once and you, you know, you improve. And so the, that's no different really from the post-stroke brain. So, um, so that's become a key thing. And, you know, obviously the question we have is, you know, well, how much do we have to give in order to get that sort of traction, to get the brain sort of engaged and, and really um, rewiring and reorganizing in a way that's behaviorally meaningful? Um, and so, you know, when looking around at that, you know, as a, as a neurologist who's really interested in rehabilitating and sort of pushing plasticity and recovery, you know, like I couldn't get a number from anything and the best we have is like you know some numbers that are estimated from um these rodent models that are you know like sort of reaching to pellet eating 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 you know and that's it but you know obviously we don't we don't do that in rehab you know we don't reach to pellets of food and feed ourselves and that's it you know this is all very adl practiced and you know based and you know we're, we're looking to try to improve function and daily activities and you know gain independence um through you know self-care um, so trying to map what was happening in rodent world to what was happening in, in a rehab setting, it just, it was too disparate. So, you know, I, I couldn't sort of say like, okay, well, we need to do sort of this amount of reaches of, you know, toothbrushing or, you know, washing your face or something like that. You know, like, so we have, like, in my mind, I have to break it down to something more almost algorithmic. So I need to know sort of a dose or an intensity that's, um, you know, can be practiced and trained. Um, and reliably create a sort of uh, a, a recovery effect, right? So that's where, where I was about um, six or seven years ago, just feeling like, ah, I just need to know what to do with these patients, you know, to help them recover better. You know, like, what can I give early on that will really make a difference for them? Um, and I couldn't work with, you know, like I wasn't able to say anything to, you know, the therapist team that I, you know, was working with. And it just, it felt very like, you know, it didn't have any, any objective information to tell them. So um, that got me to this, this project, which is um, trying to find a way to break down those rehab activities into measurable units. We call them primitives. These are primitives are just basic sort of building blocks of motion that are functional. So these are like a reach or a transport or a reposition or a stabilization. And essentially what can happen is those will be sort of strung together as you complete an ADL, an activity of daily living. Um, and so, but the point is with that, you can break an ADL back down into those, those fundamental units. And those are things you can actually count. 
and you can say this is what I want to target in order to get better and so forth. Um, and so, uh, so that's where the, the tool came in was this idea of like, well, we need to figure out a way to count these things. First of all, we need to identify what these basic units are. That was some work I did previously um, and to reliably say that we can break ADLs down or functional activities trained in rehab down into these measurable units. And then we need to find a way to reliably detect them and count them. And so that's the PremSeq tool, which is essentially a way to take motion data off patients who are undergoing um, rehab and um, be able to pull out those primitive, those primitive um, elemental motions. That's Perfect. a lot. So I don't know if I answered your question about the, um, the wearables piece of that. Yes, absolutely. Um, for someone who might not be familiar with the term wearable and the, and the, and the, um, can you describe what, what that setup would like for someone that was that you were following during your research? Is it are these these externally yeah. worn sensors? How many of them are there? And, <clears throat> yeah. And maybe talk to the accuracy of them that you found in your research. Yeah. So um, you know, a big decision point early on in this research, I will get to that question, but the question was what is the best way to capture motion of people? You know, so one one sort of branch point is um, you know, cameras, so video cameras like we have here. And, you know, you can, you know, there are lots of approaches now that can decompose and like sort of extract data from just video data. My concern was that in a rehab environment, you know, with people turning away from a camera or someone walking in front, you know, you might get a real loss of data. So I was very attracted to the idea of wearable sensors. Um, and so in this case, I used, uh, or our team used, um, uh, what are called inertial measurement units, IMUs, um, which is a combination of um, accelerometers, so they tell you sort of linear motions and uh, combined with uh, rotational motions from gyroscopes. Um, and so it's a nice, particularly for the arms that have a lot of rotations and a lot of, you know, you can position your arm in lots of different ways. Um, you want to be able to capture where, where it's going in space at all times, you know, um, and accelerometry, I don't think really does the trick just because, you know, if you rotate, it'll totally change your, you know, data that are coming out. So um, the gyroscopes does, they do give a lot more uh, sort of ref refined and detailed data, I would say. Um, so the wearable sensors, we had uh, nine IMUs on the, on the upper body. So we had, you know, three on each arm um, and then we had three down the back down to the pelvis and the great thing about this this was an off the off the shelf commercial system um, Noraxon um, that we used to pull off the data so it's not only collecting this this acceleration the linear and angular accelerations but it's also using a model that's sort of sized to the person um, able to recreate um, some of the joint angles of the upper body and so with all of that data coming in off people, so we'd get, you know, 76 streams of <clears throat> information coming off of per 10 milliseconds um, off of each of these patients. So it was, you know, it's a wireless system. They're about matchbook size. Um, you know, they're, they're, we put them on with Velcro and with um, Tegaderm tape, you know, to on the door some of the hands so that the fingers are free. And um, yeah, it's it, they were you know really well tolerated. Um, they're not you know they're not not there you know they're not sort of invisible. You do feel them, um, but they're light. You know you can move freely with them, and um, you can roam around space. You can turn away from people, and you know you're always collecting data. So it that that felt like a much more reliable source of continuous data for me. 
And so once you kind of had this, you know, the, the concept of how to capture the data and then you're, you know, pulling it into this <clears throat> machine learning algorithm, you know, what were some of your objectives laid out with kind of how you were going to learn from all this data and like what, what was your goal from that? Yeah, so um, to build this, you know, you have to, so machine learning is, you know, it's, it's like teaching a, a toddler how to learn a new motor skill or something, you know, like you want to say, you like, you have to, I'm, that's maybe a bad analogy. Let's change it. So I, I like the, the thought of it being like, you know, one of those sniffer dogs, you know, that you see at the airport, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going through a world of sense, you know, but it's been taught to identify, you know, explosives or, you know, drugs or fruit or whatever, right? But back in the day when it was a puppy and it was growing up and learning to identify those things, it was given lots and lots of examples and reinforcement and reward when it got it right and sort of recognizing when it got it wrong before, you know, it was trained to the point of detectability, you know, able to reliably detect those those particular scents in this, you know, sea of scents. So um, when we go about with machine learning and when we do any kind of super, what's called supervised machine learning, it is you're teaching an algorithm, which is really just a fancy computer program to, to learn what you want to teach it. You know, so you have to give lots of examples of the thing you wanted to identify. So we had, um, you know, a group of, of individuals or stroke come in and do a lot of rehab um, activities for us. We simultaneously recorded them with video, actually, in this case, but um, video and the IMUs, the sensors that are worn on the body. <clears throat> and then we had, we took that video and we watched it. So we, meaning a host of undergraduate trained students and uh, coordinators who were taught how to say, okay, this is how we define as humans, we define a reach, this is how we define a transport, and you know, here's where we say the start of it is, the end of it is, and so forth. So we as humans are watching this video, we're breaking down those activities into those fundamental units. What that effectively does is it then chunks up that underlying, that 76-dimensional data from the sensors that's associated, that pattern of data that's associated, that motion data that's associated with, the, say, a reach, and you're handing that off to the algorithm to then say, okay, when you see this sort of pattern of craziness of data, this is going to lock, that's when you, that's when you need to call it a reach, and that's, this is the pattern that goes along with the transport and, and so forth, and so you give it thousands of examples of these types of primitives and over time it starts to learn the nuances of whatever is in the patterns that it's letting it to make its classification correct. Um, and it, it learns essentially that relationship between your class, which is our primitive, and the pattern of motion that's associated with it. Yeah, so so how, and like for someone with left arm spasticity, right, whose reach might be at a certain degree versus yeah. another survivor who has a greater, you know, reach. How do yeah. the, the, the kind of algorithm still able to pinpoint those? And yeah, amazingly. Yeah. yeah, so there was, there, it was, it's a mix. Okay, so I guess the first thing is you have to um, train the algorithm on who you want to sort of test on down the road, right? Should be totally patients and so forth. Um, but we, you we had mild to moderately impaired patients, um, and I should say that when the exclusion was having an, like an Ashworth of four, so if people were contracted, you know, we we didn't have them in this in this initial sort of run. 
Um, but there could be sort of some significant spasticity. Typically, it was around in Ashworth too. So that's anyway. The point is, it's it's you know people were able to move. Um, you, you, if you give enough examples, and why we wanted to train the algorithm not on healthy people but actually on stroke patients just from the outset was you know we we were assuming that there may be a lot of trunk motion, you know, or there may be a limited um, you know you know shoulder flexion and arm extension. You know that's going to be part of that picture of a stroke-related, stroke-impaired reach or a stroke-impaired transport. And so we gave, um, again, a lot of examples of, the, of these different types of reaches in different places and space by patients with different levels of impairment. Um, and actually for the mild to moderate <clears throat> impaired patients, it did really well in terms of predicting, you know, reaches and transports and identifying them in the new, in the new group that it had never seen before. Um, so actually it did really well. In terms of taking that, you know, that algorithm that had been trained previously on mildly and moderately impaired patients and seeing how well it would do in, say, a severely impaired patient, it doesn't do as well because it's never seen a patient reach like that before, right? So it doesn't, it, you can't sort of assume that it's going to, you know, been taught French and be able to speak Spanish, you know? So it, you know, it has its limitations in terms of how well you can generalize to, to folks who are moving in a different way. And the same thing goes for like if you had ataxia, you had some tremulousness or tremor, significant tremor, um, or you know other types of movement disorders. It wouldn't necessarily be able to detect things as well. I don't expect it to do that because it had never seen that. Uh, I, I Heidi, I love, I love that example you just gave on training the AI or training the, making the algorithm, building the algorithm using um, a, a, a dog and, can, and like a canine percent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, res it resonates right now because I have a young yeah. lab at home and we're trying oh. to do just that. So, <laughs> but it, it's the first time I heard it explained like that, and that's really that's that's impactful. Because, you know, I think there's this there's this thought and and a lot of you know as I try to talk to other PTs about merging technologies and things. They, they, yeah. they think, well, like, like a cyborg is going to take over their job or something. Yeah. And, it, and no, it's no, no. not the case. And, no. But uh, I think I'm going to have to pass this episode on. I'd like, <laughs> no, no. And it's, go ahead. Sorry. Finish no, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, you know, there is no way we could ever, <laughs> you know, swap in a robot or swap in an AI technology for a therapist, we, I mean, I 100% will be the first person to admit, like, it is, you know, seeing how, you know, OTs and PTs interact with patients, there is so much more than just dosing and, you know, like getting the reps up. I mean, there's a whole psychology, motivation, you know, shaping, getting the impairment, you know, addressed and targeted, you know, like, so many more ingredients, so to speak, um, that will help a patient recover than just reps. Um, so my my argument well, not argument but my 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 goal will be to support the therapist in saying like okay now that we've done now that we have a device that can measure something now that we can we can actually have nailed down you know 10 years from now have nailed down how much people actually need let's get you you know a means of you know reading out how patients are how well they've done are they come are they getting up to this sort of number that we're all trying to hit you know like how can we sort of squeeze it <clears throat> get more out of this, um, you know, like, are we ahead of our goal? Or are we behind our, you know, it's it's the same sort of, that feedback is actually really empowering. And actually there's some interesting work that came out in the PT realm, but you guys, up your guys' alley, but um, 
Janice Ng, um, you know, just published a dosing trial with, uh, with uh, treadmill, like, uh, sorry, not treadmill, but like um, steps and, and gait therapy. And, you know, it was a dose escalation trial and, you know, finding that like having feedback and first of all, the dose, higher dose was more effective in, in helping these patients ambulate, uh, achieve a higher level of ambulation, ambulatory function earlier in their recovery process. But one of, I think, a really interesting takeaway was like having an in, information for the for the therapist about the heart rate target, you know, where, where they were in their zone in terms of how many steps they had accomplished with respect to what they were trying to accomplish. You know, that was not only empowering for a therapist to say like, look, Mr. Jones, you know, you're, you're a little bit behind here. Let's try to get to this, you know, so it was sort of like giving a patient sort of an objective, you know, it was sort of external to a therapist not being, you know, being hard on the patient, but, you know, actually trying to go and work with the patient to achieve this, this you know, external goal um, that would help them. And the patient was really excited because they could see how they're progressing and how much they've done. And, you know, so like just having that information in this, in the rehab space, I think will be incredibly useful for both the therapist and the patient. Like, I think the team that is sort of coming at it together, I think will only be very helpful. Um, but. Yeah. I. I guess like where what I'm correlating a lot of this too is my past training. So I I played basketball at a kind of semi-professional level, right? Okay. And I spent a lot of time in the gym. You know, I yeah. spent a lot of time on my routine, on my follow shots, and I always whenever I worked out, I had a number, right? I I'm gonna make 300 shots today. Right. To me, because I was paid to play, I had the opportunity to stay in the gym for however long that took. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I think the model right now, when we look at stroke rehab, it's really kind of session based. Right. right. So, yeah. like, do you see this and is like, is what you're trying to move towards saying more so, hey, insurance companies, you need, we need to reimburse more at the rep level rather than you yeah. get 12 sessions every six months as a stroke survivor or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Like, what will change the the game? I think probably we are all on the same page that what patients and survivors of stroke are getting are is not enough. Um, you know, in the sense of it's not long enough. You know, our lengths of stays are shortening in the acute inpatient rehab units, um, and there is a period of plasticity that is you know maybe a window of opportunity that's about three months at most. Um, if not shorter, that we need to engage aggressively, aggressively. So um, what we need to show in order to change the insurance sort of construction, I think, is first to show that repetition really does matter. It does actually cause an early effect. It causes a, a longer sustained effect. Probably we need to, I'm, I'm sure we need to show some monetary benefit of that, you know, like it's less downstream cost for, you know, um, you know, either rehab therapy, certainly, but also, you know, other medical care and um, comorbidities. So, um, you know, I think there needs to be shown like an ultimately a financial benefit to investing early and aggressively um, in, in training. In terms of what can be accomplished, you know, like, I don't know if we could, if we can stay with the same, you know, the three hours of therapy. So I'm, I'm thinking like in the acute rehab unit where you have a three total hours a day, right? So split across three domains, PTOT and speech and language pathology. 
And, um, you know, so most patients might be getting an hour and a half in one of those domains. Um, and, you know, first of all, I think we need to figure out, like, how, how much is, how much do we need to be doing, actually, in order to be getting some real traction with recovery, um, some, a, a bigger boost than what patients are already sort of naturally getting. Um, so that work needs to be done. And then I think then you're trying to look at, you know, okay, does our existing structure of a, maybe 30 minutes up to an hour and a half, can that accommodate the number of repetitions that need to be done in order for a patient to recover? So I think the first thing to, we need to do is actually figure out what that intensity is in order to, to see that. And I should say, it won't be the same for all levels of impairment. So for a patient who is severely impaired, it's gonna be harder potentially for them to get 300 repetitions or 900 repetitions of something, right? So, you know, we may be trying to look at other ways to, you know, augment plasticity in, in parallel, you know, through brain stimulation type approaches, uh, through medication. Um, you know, it may be something where we need to keep it, you know, we need to spread it out over the course of a day, um, you know, or we just say, you know, we, we're never going to get 300, but, you know, for us to get to that sort of level that they will, you know, maximally get, you know, with the degree of um, injury to the brain, um, you know, they're going to need this amount. So, again, this the study is looking at intensity response, that sort of dose-response relationship. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be stratified, you know, and certainly this is something we want to do, um, which is to, you know, to see, okay, within this sort of, if you arrive with this level of impairment at the very beginning, you know, how much can we kind of boost within that for that, for that stratum of person? Um, and so what is that, that critical amount for that group for a higher level, for medium level and so forth? So, um, that is also a piece that needs to be brought into the picture of what people will tolerate and what they're able to do within a period of time. And, and I think we're, we're all in agreement, might get a good analogy using the sport theme. It's reps, 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 right? Not to oversimplify recovery, but it's putting in the time and it's not, yeah. you know, it's not two sets of 10. We learned um, from some of our early research when we were, we were coming back reputatory and shut down during the pandemic, we were at the yeah. International Stroke Conference and there was some, there were some, um, and the rehab sections that I attended, they, they, they really talked about, you know, when they count, when they did count the reps in outpatient, outpatient setting, like they, they'd averaged uh, 32, I think it was Steve Kramer yeah. or someone else from UCLA. And it's like, we know that that just isn't simply enough. And there's a big cost to the, to, to everyone involved in that stroke survivors recovery in terms of getting there for that dose of 32 reps. Um, yeah. So with, with the, with that known, you're working on the other end, which is what is that stimulus or what is that? How do you feel, um, therapists, do you eventually see this as an adjunct to what they're doing in the clinic? Maybe, it, you know, the, yeah. the big thing we heard is, you know, the stroke recovery is moving into home in some shape or form. Do yeah. you see your tools being um, having um, having utility there and, and, and um how would that what look like for the way you know home stroke therapy is done now? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a great question. You know, if we stay on this course of discharging patients, you know, well within their window of opportunity, um, then you know we will need to transition to home-based type of or, or remote um, or virtual type of rehab setup. Um, <clears throat> 
So my ideal for this will be um, a couple things. So one is, you know, the wearable sensors, they're, it's a big array. Um, so we would like to find ways to kind of streamline that. And there, you know, you could combine with like a single camera, you know, again, trying to avoid data dropouts and so forth. But there are these data hybrid hybridization approaches where, you know, you can get a lot of rich information simultaneously, but may be able to cut down on how you're, how, how you're collecting it. Um, that's a key piece that needs to happen to be able to go home and even actually to go into a rehab setting. You know, you don't want it to be a clunky setup for, you know, a therapist to have to help a patient on. Um, so that's one big piece. Um, the, the piece of, um, you know, I, ideally I would like to have this be something where a patient can, you know, wear a, um, a, the sensor array or have a camera associated with it and essentially just plug in and do their repetitions or even do their day-to-day -day activities. You know, you know, while people are moving around, they're doing something functional. And I think there's a way to potentially reinforce that. So you can gamify that system certainly and make it like, you know, how you have your pedometer, your Fitbit, you're sort of seeing how many steps you got in for the day. It's the same sort of readout that I would like, you know, the number of, of primitives you've done during the day or, you know, and, and trying to set goals in that way. So not only integrating use and sort of promoting um, real world use of that of that impaired side but also you know could be gamifying it with you know like practice sessions and sort of working with um, you know different video type platforms video game type platforms where patients can really kind of get into sort of those motions um, but I, my, my sort of gut sense is that like the more we can get people to do to practice to train in situ like to be training in the in the home and in working with those objects that they work with. Like, I think the virtual space idea, while it's compelling and exciting, it's, it's you know, there's nothing like the real thing, right? So you, you really like to be able to sort of reinforce that sort of utility in the home space. And of course, then taking that information, communicating that back to therapists, um, and then also being able to give that feedback during a, a remote session, I think is also a really key piece. So. You know, it's a data collection tool. It's a meant to, or or it's a it's a it's a counting tool. It's at its simplest, right? It's a fancy kind of back end, but it's the idea is just to count this stuff up. It's not brilliant, <laughs> like in terms of the concept. You know, I just want to have some way to like track what a patient's doing, you know, so that we can then modify it or intervene or like sort of reinforce it, you know, and it's and let patients know how they're doing and tell them they're you know making good strides, you know, like it's pretty simple. Um, so we just, we've had a fancy way to try to hit this, but I think it's important information. Yeah. And soon to be in the metaverse, probably, right? In the metaverse with it. That'll be the next step. With, with going into some, into some wonderful rehab setting in yeah, Arquito yeah. and, you know, and rehabbing there, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Um, so, it actually does a pretty good job replicating. I don't know if you, yeah. it's a, it's got a good avatar. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think yeah, we could have another session on metaverse, but it, <laughs> it is. You know, I think you know we, we looked. Or some of my early research was in uh, virtual reality, and mm -hmm. you know, it's all it's it's being able to train that cognitive sense as well. Like you know, yeah. you're in a plush PT studio is yeah. way different than you know stepping onto a bus for the first time or stepping up you know going down right. a cobblestone street so right. yeah it, it's right. going to be interesting to kind of see where that space goes um yeah. but 
let's uh, let's talk a little bit about you know where this research is kind of originated from and and some of the work that you're doing at is it Mobilis Lab? The Mobilis Lab, yeah. Yeah, Mobilis Lab. So yeah, can you talk to kind of what you know that that organization is structured from and kind of your your mission and obviously you know some of the other research that you might have pipeline. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, my lab, we're a small but mighty crowd. We um, we are a group here at NYU and um, we, you know, my, my, my mission is sort of twofold. It's, you know, to understand mechanistically how the brain is recovering. Brainers, I would say, you know, neural systems are recovering after a stroke. Um, so at the pathway level, at the, you know, cellular level, if possible, but really we study pathways. Um, and using that information to develop new methods or new technologies or new therapeutics um, in sort of a rationally designed manner to really boost um, recovery. And so, you know, we're very interested in neuroplasticity, sort of how it innately or endogenously occurs after a stroke with a goal always of, you know, with that information, you know, what can we do in terms of our interventions to really target that and boost it and increase it, um, that plasticity in particular. So along those lines, you know, we have this work that, you know, ultimately is meant to, it wasn't again, it was a, a method in order to support the work that would be, you know, like we need to build a targeted approach to dosing, you know, appropriate. We need to be able to measure and quantitate and do those dose response studies. So in the absence of any other sort of tool out there, you know, sort of step back a, a, a notch and say, okay, well, let's develop that tool in order to support this type of research. And, you know, of course, research by other people in the field. So that's the quantitative side of things, but, you know, ultimately leading, I mean, the, the game, the end game is always to do these dosing studies in a very objective measured way, just so we can start to get a handle on, at least at the repetition level, what do patients need in order to get better if we give it early enough? So that's one major line of work. Um, so from a mechanistic standpoint, otherwise, um, I have a line of work looking at um, a different type of pathway than we normally think about for uh, motor recovery after stroke. And so, you know, we as neurologists, we think about the corticospinal tract, which is a major driver of movement, um, particularly for the arms and particularly for the hands and, and fingers. Um, what's becoming sort of more, I think, the field is becoming more aware of in the last, you know, five, 10 years or so is that there's this, there are these other pathways, right? There, it's not just the corticospinal tract, there are other motor pathways in the brain um, and in the spinal cord uh, that may help or um, take over with recovery. So um, say you knock out the corticospinal tract, there's another pathway called the corticoreticulospinal tract, or we call it CREST for short, and um, this is an older school pathway. It's a primordial type pathway. Actually, a lot of our less evolved um, relatives use this pathway predominantly for motion or for movement generation. Um, and it's between, you know, essentially the cortex and the brainstem and then the brainstem out to the spinal cord. And so <clears throat> we're probing that pathway now in a, in a study that's looking at recovering um, individuals with stroke who are in the first six months after stroke, and we're, we're tracking this pathway on the other side, on the other side of the brain. It descends bilaterally, so it, it sort of sends a projection to one side and, of course, to the other side. So if you have a stroke, the thinking is that this pathway may sort of like jazz up and get sort of come online to take over some function, and, you know, you're dealing with a predic arm, you know, it's actually, you have 
an available pathway to, to help with that. And of course, there's um, good animal work to justify that. And there's been a long history of, oh, wow, this other hemisphere actually lights up after you have a stroke and it seems to be really active. And there's been a lot of narrative about, oh, it's a bad thing, but actually this may be the, the pathway that's sort of coming to help restore some function, coming to, to assist. And so we're, we're probing that with um, transcranial magnetic stimulation, trying to, to listen to the circuitry of that pathway. And then also with some um, fancy imaging to look at some of the neurostructural changes that are occurring in the gray matter and the white matter tracks. And so stay tuned for those results. Hopefully we'll have those in a couple of years. Um, we're, we're in the midst of data collection right now for that. So um, that's the two big active lines of research. And then um, we have a third that's coming online, which is looking at vagus nerve stimulation and the mechanism of that. And so um, stay tuned for that as well. Um, as I, I feel like we have to have you back on to dive into all that because I'm getting my my most difficult training was the neuroanatomy during oh, gosh. Yeah. and Trust and me. and I love hearing it now because I I'm, I was very lucky that I didn't get rid of yeah. all my neuro notes because yeah. I didn't know you know fast forward six years out that I'd have my own stroke and have to figure like oh, no. like really dive into yeah. why I'm doing yeah. what I'm doing so thank you for yeah. putting that out and um yeah. I I think that um I I, I want to be respectful Mike is it about that time um, yeah. it's about that time Heidi you might not know what this is we do stream this on YouTube as well this is our magic wand we are a low budget uh, production right now, yeah. so this is the best that we can do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, Mike, do you want me to hand you the magic wand, or? Uh... Um, it, it will pass it in the metaverse. That's okay. There you go. <laughs> ask, ask away, uh, Mike. So, well, first, before I get to the magic wand question, okay. um, for um, survivors out there who or caregivers might be interested in learning more about, you know, your yeah. specific research, is there any any way to guide them? Yeah, I mean, it, you can come to my website and there's um, a contact on the last page. My website is mobilislab.com. <laughs> that's my lab's website. Um, you can also, and, and it, that's, I don't know if I'll spell it. Mobilis Lab is M-O-B-I-L-I-S-L-A-B, one word. Um, and uh, you, you know, certainly can look me up online and or contact me by my email. It's also available online. So um, happy to talk with you and to talk about um, our research studies. Um, we do have a registry. You know, we always have new studies that are coming online, and these aren't necessarily folks who have just had a stroke, but may have had a stroke, you know, long time ago. Um, I study the arm, so we really do focus on arm impairments, not so much language or cog or um, gait abnormalities, but um, that's, you know, so we, we would look for that. But um, you're welcome to contact me. I'd love to have you join us, especially if you're in the tri-state area, then we can, you know, bring you into our, our area, tri-state New York City area. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll list all the that contact info in the show Great, notes perfect. for folks. For, perfect. So, yeah, we, we tend to wrap up every show with our, our magic, wand. magic wand questions. Yes. So we're handing you the magic wand. And if you were able to use that magic wand to redesign yeah. the stroke care pathway, what would that yeah. look like? Yeah, I think, okay, magic wand. This is so, I love it. It's, um, 
So first things first, once we're out of that acute acute window in that first week of after a stroke, you know, getting an individual into as intense a rehab sort of an environment as possible. Intense meaning like you're training, you know, you're doing that sort of integration with a therapist. You'd have a bespoke team who would stay with you. Um, it, you know, and that so you, there's not a lot of transitions of care and, you know, like you can really work and grow with um, your therapists. Um, this would be a longer duration, so not just the two weeks that are typically given, um, you know, at least a month, if not longer. So we're really actively engaging with our wonderful clinicians um, that that robust neuroplasticity that's occurring after strokes at, at least a month, if not longer. Um, and then really transitioning very, very quickly to a home-based virtual rehab platform where we do have, again, um, a way to measure how much patients are doing um, so that, you know, there's a, a, a very clear link to not only them, but also to the therapist, you know, about, you know, what we need to be giving, how they're doing, how they're doing at home, you know, making sure they're integrating um, into home use, which is a, another big point of drop-off, um, so that sort of real-world use. Um, and, you know, having a much just tighter relationship, I think, with our patients, it's just too high throughput, you know, and I want to make sure, like, this is, a, this is a period of time which is so critical and where I think interventions will really make a, a tremendous impact, you know, but after, you know, three, six, seven months, you know, it's harder to get that same sort of amount of change. It's not impossible, I shouldn't say don't lose hope, but it's just it's harder and I think we can leverage that though it's but it is something where we have to be a lot more you know aggressive and like much more in, in engaging the brain and engaging a patient um, during those those first months after stroke so really just a sort of a system where it's much more integrated it's integrated with a therapist the therapists are and the patients are informed objectively about how things are going and where we should be aiming to go with our patients um, in terms of training amount and um, yeah, and then continuing that at home. That will be my magic wand. And then lots of cool, cool neurotech with that, you know, with motion capture and, you know, working with virtual spaces and like all that sort of enriched sort of experience. I think that would be spectacular. Great answer, Heidi. And and we've been, we've been at this for close to 30 episodes, Mike. And every time we hear the magic wand, they get better and better. So, and, 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 and we, we keep saying we have to do sort of a montage and put them all together because there's this underlying theme that we have to do more and we oh, have yeah. to, you know, so um, yeah. really um, want to thank you for your time this evening. I'd like to get you hopefully home, hopefully is this might be the end of your day. So um, maybe before dark here. So this has been a pleasure. Yeah. We're going to put all the show uh, you know, the links that you shared in, and uh, we we hope to, our, our, our community follows up and can engage if they're in your area as well. So, um, Mike, take us out. This has been great. It's a pleasure thank to meet you, so Heidi. Much. Yeah, yeah. Well said, David and Heidi. Thank you again for your time. Um, maybe we'll catch each other in, in Central Park one day. I would love it. That's great. Looking at clouds, right? Um, well, thank you, Mike and David, and thank you for this work. I really appreciate it. And I know your your listeners and observers do as well. So thank you. And um, let's keep at it. We're going to make some changes in our in our field, right? This is important. Got it. Absolutely. We're committed. Right. Thank you, Heidi. Okay, good. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye.